Hello and welcome back to Two Bar Stools and a Knife, talking about the hospitality industry then, now, and in the future. From FIU Chaplain School of Hospitality and Tourism Management and the Bacardi Center of Excellence, I am Professor Nathan Dodge, joined by Professor Brian uh, Connors, whatever your name is, and Chef John Noble Massey. Hello, gentlemen. How are you guys doing? Boom. We're doing good. Uh, hello, uh, uh, da, uh, Nathan. Yeah, whatever my uh, 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 name is. Come on. We were just talking about how many Zooms we've been on today, so give me a little oh. bit of a break. Well, this is going to be the, my favorite one of the day. Hey, this my week favorite. we're focusing on family. We're talking about family stories, family heritage. Um, I know that to the three of us, family is really important. And definitely is family is important to our special guests this week. Also, um, it's the start of August. So August is rum month. And we're going to start rum month with a bang today with our guest. Um, and all month long, we're going to focus on, on this beautiful, sweet elixir. You know, rum and whiskey are my two favorite spirits, and this month is really exciting. So before we get started and before we hand it over to Brian, I had a quick question. I'm thinking about adding something to the podcast, guys. So think about this. Okay. Mm-hmm. So once we get past COVID, what I want to do is something called the dive report. Now, you know, I'm a big bar guy. I'm a big ocean guy. Brian likes to be on the water. I like to be in the water. So I'm thinking of the name uh, dive report. So I want to do like two to five minutes every week talking about our favorite dive bars, what our, our guests like for dive bars, and hopefully our fans, because we, we have a lot of them now. We're, we're in like 31 different countries we've been listening to, so they must have some great dive bars. So guests out there, fans, if you like talking about dive bars, like hearing about dive bars, post on our Facebook page, your favorite dive bar, and as we go out and see the country, we will, if we can ever see the country again and see dive bars, we really want to talk about that. So that was my thought. What do you guys think about that? Yes? I think it's no? a nifty play on the words. I know. I thought that was fun. Love it. All right. And we need a jingle. So, Christina, Yuli, uh, come up with a jingle the way that you came up with a cool little jingle for us because we like jingles. All right. Enough of my musing. Let's find out what's happening in Bacardi Land. Brian, take it away. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. Everything, as per usual, is uh, doing very well in uh, the Bacardi Center of Excellence. Our biggest outlier right now is are we returning to campus? We'll keep our fingers crossed and everyone's safe on that. But more importantly, hey, join us on August 6th. Uh, We have Elizabeth Plough from Las Vegas fame going to be our next guest on Bacardi Talks. Registration is open. It's filling up nicely. It's in the hundreds. Uh, we have the capacity for about uh, 500 people. So first come, first serve on registration on that. You, of course, can find the registration on any of our social media outlets, including LinkedIn, Instagram, and all those good things. And for whatever reason, if you can't find it, feel free to email me directly at bconnors uh, at fiu.edu. And I will gladly send you the link because I'm looking forward to that. And by the way, gentlemen, uh, there will be some special guests joining us for Elizabeth. Ooh, uh, yeah, yeah. Like so a that's going to be teaser. It's going to be good, man. It's, it's a hustle to get these things done, but uh, it, it's going to be good. All Things with Bacardi Teach, also fantastic. Uh, we are now in the thousands, as I announced uh, on our last podcast with Lincoln, but as of yesterday, we're approaching about 1,200 courses taken, which is fantastic. And again, our visits on average is about 5,000 to 6,000 visits a day to that site. So it's interesting, you know, and we're going to be launching new content. And as we say, we're in the labs now. We're working with brand ambassadors. We're working with other professionals. Uh, But please just remember that this content takes a little bit of time to create. 
keep it relevant, to edit it out. We want to make sure we're giving you the best possible information we can. So more to come on Bacardi Teach. And the last little new thing we're getting excited about with the academic year approaching is our Bacardi Innovation Challenge, which we'll be teasing out some more information as we go. But we're really going to be looking at and we took a little bit of a spin on this one. I know Nathan's been in some meetings with me on this one, but we're going to really identify how we can figure out best solutions, fast solutions to help people during these challenging times with COVID-19, particularly in the hospitality, particularly in the beverage segment. So keep your uh, eyes and ears open for our Bacardi Innovation Challenge uh, approaching us. We'll be able to help some people out. So that's what's going on in my world. So shall we get this thing going, guys? Let's introduce our speaker, Brian. Absolutely. It's, it's not so, a speaker. She's a guest. She's a, guest. She's a lovely, lovely be our guest. Be our guest. Oh okay, my God. Yes. No singing. It's, it's just <laughs> as bad as Dodge's puns last week. So it's oh my sorry. Were wonderful. Hey, so to kick off uh, our rum month, as Nathan mentioned earlier, we were really excited to have Rachel Dorian with us today, family member of the Bacardi legacy, um, sixth generation uh, from the Bacardi family. I'm curious to hear about that. But the cool thing with Rachel is that she's also in charge of the history, the heritage, and communicating this to people that will need it or want to learn more about it. So I've already been kind of hinting, saying, we got to do more, we got to do more, but particularly with brand ambassadors, particularly with information going out there to ensure they're getting the proper stuff. The stuff that goes back is absolutely amazing. So without further ado, Rachel, welcome to Do Bar Stools and a Knife. Thank you, thank you, thank you. What a lovely introduction. I'm so happy to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely. We're st super stoked to have you with us as well. But the work you have cut out for you to organize, develop, and be able to tell the story is great. Hey, but before we get into that story, Rach, um, let's hear a little bit more about you. You know, we know you got a, a hospitality background, but uh, give us the one, two, three. Yes, absolutely. So I grew up in Virginia, actually, pretty, you know, away from Bacardi here in Miami. And a lot of my Bacardi family members um, actually, and I, I worked in hospitality through high school, uh, actually at a bakery that totally changed my mind on just the idea of hospitality. And I absolutely fell in love with the idea of like going to culinary school. I wanted to be a baker. I had a huge sweet tooth. So I was John, John Massey in the corner is smiling right now. <laughs> I still do. And, if, and, and Rachel, if you could go to a culinary school, which one would it be? So I actually got into Johnson and Wales University. Yay! Yeah, I was like so, so close to going to Johnson and Wales University in Charlotte. And I think maybe just being a little, you know, too far away from home, kind of had my hesitations about it. Um, but I, I was super passionate about just cooking and baking and, and serving people. I totally fell in love with it. And then when I visited my alma mater, James Madison University, completely different, doesn't have a culinary program. I fell in love with the campus, the vibe, and the hospitality school there as well. So I went to JMU. Four years later, you know, I'm, I was thinking the whole time, like, well, I could always transfer to culinary school, you know, if, if, if things change and this is really what I want to do. But the hospitality program just blew me away. I think I always kind of felt a little, maybe a little lost as to where I fit in in the hospitality world. You know, most people go work for hotels or they work for restaurants and they just kind of have an idea of that path that they wanted. And that was never the case for me. It was, it was a little frustrating. Uh, but four years later, I was graduating with a hospitality degree and a specialization in business and also in wine. So wine was kind of like my first love. Um, I really fell in love with like sharing the stories behind these producers and the families that were creating these really cool products. And especially like the moments that these 
you know, these particular wine brands created for people at home to enjoy. So a little bit different path there. But once I graduated, I took a job in DC working for a wine company, like a personal sommelier. It was really cool. I was able to pick out wines for people based off their taste preferences and get to know what they liked and help build these moments around meals or sharing them with loved ones. And I totally fell in love with it. It was just like my gateway into the world of spirits. So when the chance to, when the chance to work in the Bacardi archives came up and, and really carry on my family legacy, absolutely jumped at it, made the switch from wine to spirits. And I moved here to Miami about a year and a half ago, and I've been loving it ever since. Well, you are uh, welcome with open arms in the Miami uh, area. Thank you so much. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> It's such a cool place to be, especially for rum and and just our office here at Bacardi is fascinating. Um, It's been like walking into a second family that I never knew before now. So it's amazing. So were you always like a storyteller if you, you know, you're telling stories in the wine industry and, and now basically your job is telling the story of your family heritage, right? That's right. I like to think of it as being a storyteller because there's so much that goes into interpreting these amazing artifacts that we have in the archives and, and getting to know the, the story behind our company. I mean, 158 years since Bacardi began, that's a lot of time and a lot of things have happened in that time. So uh, really pulling out the stories that make us who we are today, I think resonates very well with the, the guests that we have you know, our new primos and just getting to, to share the legacy with them has been one of my favorite things about this role. I like to talk. So storytelling is very fun. And when you have really cool artifacts and advertisements and photos to share your story, it just makes it all the more easy to do so. Now, Rachel, I know I had the pleasure of touring your, your production facility, which was open to the public for tours in uh, Puerto Rico. Uh, yes. But I know Casa that the Bacardi. Bacardi archives are private ar- archives, right? And so you're, uh, could you elaborate a little bit more on what, what's, what's there and what, what the, what's there about? Sure. I think a lot of people think, you know, if you haven't been to an archive before, and many people haven't, they think of it as this uh, library or this kind of dark, dusty place with lots of old manuscripts and, you know, maybe like a creepy librarian who reads by candlelight and, I've actually had people tell me that that's what they expected when they were coming to visit the archives. So I didn't know how to feel about that, but it really bats, is. Just, bats flying around. You know? <laughs> bats flying well, there might around. Be bats. Yeah. There might be bats. It is Bacardi. We do actually so, like, have a preserved bat in the archives. It's, it's stuff. It's not oh, going to fly around and, and hurt anyone. But it, they're really, I like to think of them as this big time capsule, except it continues to be added to. And it's, it's open for us as this point of research and inspiration for what's going on in the company. It's not just this place where we you know, kind of preserve things and hide them and they never see the light of day again. So if you can think about anything that sort of touched our history over the last 158 years as a company and as the Bacardi brand, chances are it's in our archives. So some of the really cool things that I get to preserve and share the stories of, we have business records from the 1840s signed by our founder, over 5,000 photographs from the Bacardi family members, Mm. um, a few thousand rum bottles, many of which I think about... 60 or so are from Cuba, which really help us see the progression of how our bottle has changed over time and how our portfolio developed. We have the world's largest privately held cocktail book collections. There's a lot of really cool recipes, inspiration behind cocktail culture in there. Um, and of course, beautiful advertisements. I think one of the favorite fan favorites of our primos and um, some of our ambassadors are advertisements from Bacardi Rum. And those date all the way back to the 1800s. 
So there's a little bit of everything in there. That's that's just skimming the surface. Yeah. The archive started only 20 years ago with just a box of little 35 mil- millimeter slides and a few family photographs. And now we have over 18,000 cataloged assets. And that's just the ones that we have cataloged. So there's even more in there. Uh, we continue to add to it every day. That's, that's incredible. And to be responsible for all of that history must be a great sense of pride for you as well. Absolutely. It's, it's so cool that this is, you know, every day I kind of pinch myself that this is my job to share the legacy of my family and the family that I have here today, our primos all around the world. And it's a fascinating history. We always say it's, you know, a story made for the movies because there's really just so much that has happened to our company and, and our people to, to get us to be the world's largest privately held spirits company today. So it's kind of like my little tool and many people, you know, from Bacardi are encouraged to come and use it as a resource for inspiration for the next generation of recipes and ideas. Well, we're always talking about stories and experiences. It's a way we try to connect with our students and in our classrooms. And it's, I'm sure a great way for you to connect with not only consumers, but with uh, other businesses. And I mean, you've got 158 years of rum history if you could share one or two, it's a hard to encapsulate 158 years of that history in, in this podcast, but if you can share one or two things that our listeners may or may not be aware of about the early history of Bacardi, that would be amazing. Absolutely. So I'd like to kind of take, because I think it's cool to explain the, the beginning of the, you know, of Bacardi as we know it and how that relates to our archives with some of the materials and, and documents that I preserve. So Some of the earliest pieces of information that we have in the Bacardi archives tell the story of how Bacardi began in Cuba nearly 200 years ago. So if you think back to, you know, much simpler times in uh, 200 years ago in 1830 was when Bakunda Bacardi took a ship all the way from his hometown at just 15 years old to Santiago de Cuba to make a name for himself. And he was really looking for this opportunity in this moment to be a prosperous young man and, and make, you know, make a name for himself in a new place. I can't imagine doing that as a teenager, um, but he did it. In 1830, he began to save up a little bit of money. He was working for his brothers in their small goods store there in, in Cuba. And we have some documentation in the archives that talks about some of the, you know, the first sales that he made uh, in his new business. And he owned this small goods store on the outskirts of Santiago, he got married. We have some really cool pictures and documentation of him and his wife in the archives. He even had a few children. And life was pretty tranquil and you know blissful, as you can imagine, in Cuba at that time. The interesting changes is that in the archives, some of the documentation that shows you know, the beginning of Bacardi Rum is when Facundo's first business was really seeing its demise. So on August 20th, 1852 is when things totally took a turn for the worst. Uh, Santiago was rocked by two of the most detrimental earthquakes. It crumbled buildings. You know, it just kind of sent everything into chaos. And Facundo actually closed up that importing store that he had uh, to lead the volunteer efforts to help save his community and take care of his newly adopted community in Santiago. Months later, he discovers that his store has been looted and many of his customers are unable to pay him back. So he's forced to declare bankruptcy. And what's interesting there is that This bankruptcy, which was such a setback for him as a middle-aged man, after everything he had spent so much time to work for, he left his home to come to this new island in the Caribbean, was what triggered the inception of Bacardi and 
what we see today is this you know, massive, amazing company and really cool brand. So having that entrepreneurial spirit, no pun intended, Facundo realized that there really wasn't much of an option for people in Cuba when it came to spirits that they could sip on or just getting their hands on spirits or wine in general was really complicated. You either had the really harsh aguardiente, which was, you know, it's literally translated to fire water. It's, um, it wasn't very pleasant to sip on, or you had super expensive imported wine and spirits from Europe. So neither of those options would do for Facundo. So he set out for the next 10 years after he declared bankruptcy on developing what we know Bacardi rum to be today. And he did so in a few different ways, which I think is really cool to point out because that's what makes Bacardi so unique. He took those 10 years to, to pioneer four separate techniques that are still in use today, that we still use for production today all around the world. Uh, the first being that he actually gathered his own particular yeast strain from the sugarcane plants growing outside of his home in Cuba. And that gives Bacardi its very particular taste. It can't be replicated. Um, and to this day, it's still like our, you know, our top secret proprietary yeast strain. Um, it's called La Levadora Bacardi, which is like Bacardi yeast. He then took the distillates that he made. He decided to make two, actually. One, which was Aguardiente, very robust and full and flavorful. And one called Redestillado, which is super you know, defined and very delicate and balanced. Blend those two together and create something that, that met the flavor profile that he was looking for. Very smooth and very approachable and definitely very mixable. He also introduced barrel aging with a purpose. So not just for carrying rum around in, in American oak barrels, but to add flavors and develop the ones that he wanted to keep and extract some of those flavors that he didn't want to keep. And then he filtered with charcoal, actually, which had been done before in spirits, but never before in rum. So these were some of the, the first things that he did to create Bacardi rum. And as popularity continued to grow, he bought his first distillery on the outskirts of the city on February 4th in 1862. And the rest is history. This is late, late, late six or seventeen hundreds, mid seventeen hundreds. Cuba was it was a wasteland back then. It was basically a pirate pirate town, so it was tough to get stuff. I'm assuming it, it wasn't that it was easy to you couldn't just run across the street to you know Walmart and pick up stuff. This is, <laughs> Definitely so, no Walmart. <laughs> so um, I'm assuming the bat came around about this time too. Where where, where do we start seeing the the bat logo? Yeah. So I, I have a bottle of Bacardi here with me and I know you guys can see, but at home, if you have one in your cabinet, which I hope you do, or you should. And if you one. don't, you can go over to see <laughs> liquor. And... Exactly. Uh, right on the bat of the Bacardi, uh, excuse me, on the, the front of the Bacardi bottle, you'll see a big red bat in the middle. And this has been on the front of our label since it's, since its inception um, over a hundred years ago. So this actually stems from the original distillery in Cuba. It was uh, Amalia, the, the wife of the founder, Facundo Bacardi, who walked in for the distillery for the first time, and she noticed that there was a colony of fruit bats hanging in the rafters. And they were probably there because of the sweet smell of molasses in the air and all the sugars. And most people would think, like, oh, my God, there's bats in my distillery. This is not good. Exactly. Like, they're going to be flying around, attacking me. But she saw it as an omen. It was assigned to the Spanish, so her husband's homeland of Spain, as well as the Cuban Taino Indians, the ancestors on the island at the time, of good health, family unity, and good fortune. So it was only fitting to adopt it to the label. And she suggested that, which ended up being very useful in hindsight because many of the people on the island were looking for a way to distinguish Bacardi from other products on the shelf. So they started to ask for El Ronde Murcielago, which is the rum of the bat. 
And, mm-hmm. you know, it just continued on. I think we're on, oh, gee, where are we on now? Like the ninth version of the Bacardi bat. And this one is actually drawn from a Bacardi bat that you'll see on some of our advertisements, documents in the archives from the early 1900s. So it's super black and white and very detailed and um, very classic, I think. And I totally love it. It's all over my house. It's everywhere. (laughs) You know, now it's in one of our classrooms. So, you know, if you're not one of our students and you want to swing by the FIU Chaplain School, we've got a beautiful classroom that's all decked out with Bacardi stuff. And I think a lot of it came from your archives, right, Rachel? Yes, I think everything did. Um, All of those photos, advertisements, it's all there. Yeah, it's super colorful and vibrant. I mean, we have amazing advertisements, many of which are from like the early 20th century, I think are the coolest and they're just very vibrant and fun. Yeah, early 20th century was a great time for the liquor industry. And oh, wait, that it was. No, well, it was so great much. for everyone else. It was great for Americans <laughs> yeah. who wanted to travel abroad and get yes, to Yes, if you weren't in, in America Cuba. during Prohibition, it was a good time. <laughs> yeah, you know, sometimes we make mistakes. <laughs> I want to talk about cocktails because, so, I, again, I, I, I'm the rum guy or whiskey guy, scotch guy, gin guy. But, but no, I, I do love <laughs> rum. And one of the things, so, you know, I'm, I'm not the cocktail guy. I like to drink my drinks straight. Uh, the only mixer that I normally use is a little bit of ice, sometimes a squeeze of lime. But <laughs> my favorite drink of all time, and I know that this is a Bacardi drink, is a Hemingway. Hemingway uh, daiquiri. It's like my I, my all time favorite drink. What did how did Hemingway you know help the Bacardi industry? Because I know that in his books you'll you'll see him talk about Bacardi a lot, especially um, Sun Also Rises and Old Man of the Sea. He mentions Bacardi several times, so he must be. Yeah, like, he was definitely a fan of the daiquiri. I mean, he spent so much time in Cuba. He lived there, and he was quite close with some Bacardi execs at the time as well. And he would frequent our distillery, join in on parties. We actually even threw a party, I think, for him after he won the Nobel Prize, complete with lots of Bacardi cocktails, of course. But the Hemingway uh, daiquiri... When we win the Nobel Pulitzer Prize for this, you'll have a party yes. for us too, right? <laughs> exactly. We'll have some Hemingway Checking. daiquiris. Thank you. But of course, it stems from the daiquiri cocktail itself. So he he liked the daiquiri, but he preferred one with a little bit less sugar, thus the grapefruit juice and you know he kind of tweaked it to make it his own as many people did during that time I think you know we see a lot of cocktails like the daiquiri stem into these different iterations when Americans were starting to add their own mixers or add very American ingredients and it just stems out into all of these cocktails that we know and love today still you know I I, again I love a daiquiri I love a Hemingway and I hate going to a bar and saying I want a daiquiri and it comes out this frozen strawberry slushy (laughs) so sad monstrosity like Get that away from me. I hate yeah. It. The first daiquiri was shaken and it was made with Bacardi rum and the best still are. So it was made all the way back in 1898 when an American actually who was uh, stationed in daiquiri, Cuba, very fitting. He was working on the iron mines there. And one of the, I guess you could say like the payments that he was given every month was a local product, Bacardi rum. And he was looking for a way to cool down. So he decided to mix together the most Cuban things that he could find, Bacardi rum some fresh lime juice, a little bit of sugar, and some shaved ice that he had. And that was the inception of the first Bacardi daiquiri. It's weird. That guy and myself both get paid in, in Bacardi products. <laughs> very strange. Very similar here. Not a bad life. Yeah. No, really. Yeah. 
I could talk about drinks all day long. Brian, stop. I know. Me. You're, just, you're just like, you know, I can see you, you keep bubbling saying daiquiri over. and I keep taking a Well, that's nothing wrong with that. that that's I, what we're supposed to do. Fabulous. And Rachel, yeah. I warned you. I warned you. I said, as soon as you bring it up, he's going to be like, oh, Hemingway. And, you know, yeah. so he has he has a whole book just on the books about the books of where the cocktails originated in and so forth. So It's called To um, Have and To Have cool. Another. It's a great book. It's every <laughs> drink that he's ever had in any of his books. And it's the recipes on how to make it. It's sorry. you know, I think we have that book in the archives. I haven't read it yet. Oh, it's great! It's to. awesome. You got to read it. Yeah. And what was the, what was the name of his boat dodge? The Pilar. Ooh, all right. I, I, oh. I've seen it. I've seen the Pilar. Yeah. It's going to oh. be a quiz at the end of this. On oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is this is a problem when you start activating a bunch of nerds, Rachel. We get overly excited about these things. Going, oh my oh, god. It's okay, I'm a nerd too. Just. Maybe about different cocktails. It's all good. <laughs> oh, I've well, got let, let, cocktail information, Hemingway information. <laughs> Ask me something about my actual job. And, yeah. Yeah, you're like, hmm. you know, he was once upon a time a revenue management professor. I don't know what happened oh, to him. God. His, his yeah. natural calling came out of him when we started to uh, partner with uh, Bacardi. Uh, so who the heck knows? Hey, Johnny Bear, how about you and uh, a daiquiri, sir? Will you enjoy a daiquiri on the occasion? I love daiquiri. I love a daiquiri. I, 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 you know, particularly now in the summer, I'll drink it uh, on, on the rocks. So that's the best. So I'll enjoy those. You prefer no, daiquiri right. or a mojito? Oh, here we go. Oh, daiquiri for me. Yeah, I don't need the mint. Mint to me is just extra. Sometimes the, the mojitos can be too sweet. So, Rachel, before we throw uh, the mojito at you, <laughs> I remember when uh, I'm dating myself, but then again, no one else will. 20, you like that one, Dutch. 20 something years ago, I was still in operate heavy in operations. And the mojito, like all things, there's a cycle, right? When mm-hmm. when things begin, when they end, they come back. And same thing in the wine world, same thing, but particularly in cocktails, like the old is new and the new is old again, uh, vice versa. And I was up in uh, working in Newport, Rhode Island, and we started to uh the, the, the mojito is coming real hot again and making sure that you had this authentic mojito. And I just remember I was the wine director and the food and beverage director, and I was responsible for liquor costs and food costs. And all I saw was this like cases of mint going to each one of the bars. We had six bars in this big, crazy restaurant in Newport. And I'm like, there goes my food cost. And little did I know that I was able to charge back then uh, $6.50 a drink, if not a little bit more, I know, for a Bacardi Superior uh, drink. And my liquor cost was much happier that way. But so, Rachel, clearly so, not South Beach. Got it. Not South Beach. Well, they got to know this, yeah. is, this is 1990. Remember, yeah, I'm, that's I'm a good not price. an old guy with like, like Dodge. So it's all right. And did you take into account the incremental uh, increased labor from the muddling of the. Oh, don't. I'm, I'm, I'm a nerd, like, like, you know, supercharged when it comes to that yes. stuff. Yeah, we were figuring all that stuff out because my, my bonus, in it, and for any of the students that are listening that had me in restaurants or food and beverage classes, I used to talk about bonus structure and how to do it. Everything that I did was like, how do I get my bonus as high as I possibly could? Anyway, that's a different story. So, hey, Rach, so what's, uh, what's the story with the mojito? The mojito, that's a complicated one. And before I get there, I want to say what you said just reminded me of something, but like the single most useful bit of information that I've ever gotten when it comes to making a cocktail is that you don't muddle the mint. You slap it. And it kind of releases all of those oils in a mojito. And then you just gently add it on top, you know, top it with ice and then your club soda and totally changed the game for mojitos for me because before I was just, you know, pulverizing it and it was just totally getting bitter and just no one likes to suck up like 
you know, shreds of mint leaves, but I learned you're, that. You're channeling party. your inner Gabriel. I like this because we need Gabriel. It was like a life-changing moment for me. So I do love yeah. mojitos. It's the perfect time of year to have one. And it's definitely the drink of the summer. I think it's, you know, it's super refreshing. You can add in different fruits if you like different flavors, but the classic mojito made with just lime and mint Bacardi Superior, I think is so great. Um, but Blast this is a, this is a complicated drink to really trace its origins actually. And we have a lot of documentation in the archives that point back to a British privateer named Richard Drake. So back, you know, way back when, a lot of uh, gentlemen who were traveling on ships and, you know, making these cross-ocean journeys were coming down with scurvy and just generally, un, you know, feeling pretty not great. <laughs> so they would make these little mixtures of lime juice and cane spirits that they had on hand and sugar to kind of give them a little perk of life and, this became known as the Drake, actually, so named after this particular guy. Eventually, as Bacardi rum started to pick up in popularity, because it was so mixable and people were starting to you know, get it all around the world, once the Bacardi Superior was added into the mix there, it became known as the Mojito. And in our cocktail book collection, we have a book uh, written by Pedro Quixote. I think I'm going to mess this up. Quixote Chicote. I think that's how you say it called La Ley Mojada, which is the wet law, all the way back from 1930. And that was the first time that the mojito recipe was really recorded. And of course, it was recorded with Bacardi rum. Still enjoying them to this day. All right. So let me take it. I know Dodgy's coming up next with the, with the classic of all times of, of uh, rum drinks. A Cuba Libre. Si, si, You saw how I wrote that all Listening to a bunch of Northeasterners trying to speak Spanish is like... That was very... Listening listening to Dodge and his puns last week. Yeah. He just keeps on talking about enjoying them with Diet Coke. That's his absolute favorite thing ever. Bite me. Diet Coke. Well... Mexican Coke. Mexican coke is the way to go with the mexican coke is delicious it's the pure sugar cane that you want in there like just all sugar listen to that well, i don't know about you guys but you know diet, diet coke every once in a while if you have a case of the irish flu and you got a fountain you know with a, lots of ice in it fountain diet coke nothing better than that you know diet have coke you guys ever tried pizza. like any of the flavored cokes with the cuba libre or anything like that I thought it was like, a vanilla coke the vanilla coke was good Ooh, My, that would be good with like one of the premium bacardi's like Maybe like Quattro Ocho that's like a little more vanilla-y. I also like just the uh, uh, Bacardi, or the, um, what's it, the O-Cart with Coke. Pretty Mm -hmm. happy with that. That's my favorite movie (laughs) reference with a Cuba Libre. All right. Picture this. It's mid-80s. Sorry, Rachel, I don't think you're born yet. So Tom Cruise (laughs) Mm -hmm. working at the TGI Fridays. Oh, no. (laughs) And the girl comes up and says, I need a Cuba Libre. And he has to open the book and look. He's like, yeah, it's a rum and Coke. Why didn't you just call it a rum and coke? So tell us the story of a Cuba Libre. Sorry, that was my intro to the Cuba Libre. That's, a, that's an amazing. That was fabulous. I, oh, that movie killed me. It's not just a rum and coke, though. It's a rum and coke with a wedge of lime. There's a little twist there. There's a wedge of lime. So this drink goes back almost as far as the daiquiri to 1900. So American soldiers who were stationed in Cuba were celebrating the end of the Spanish-American War. Many of them, you know, were enjoying the newly imported Coca-Cola, which was fresh to the island, an American product that they all knew and loved. But then they were also being introduced to Bacardi rum for the first time. So there's record in our archives of a particular person at a bar. This was a general, and he was mixing together. He asked the bartender to mix together Bacardi rum with Coca-Cola and a little wedge of lime. And everyone started to try it. And of course, they all fell in love with it because it's super refreshing. And when they were looking for a name to try to coin this cocktail, 
um, they were kind of stuck thinking of something to come up with. And they ended up saying, por Cuba Libre, for free Cuba, kind of like as a cheers. And this actually ties back to a drink that some of the rebel uh, Cuban fighters that drank to kind of boost their spirits a little bit that was just made from water and brown sugar. So this, this name Cuba Libre came about long before Bacardi, but once Bacardi was added, the cocktail was sort of cemented in history and um, remains, I think, one of the most ordered cocktails to this day. It's just so so simple and refreshing. And I think the lime inclusion there is really important because it's just makes it so much more refreshing and just like a little sweet, little tangy. I love it. I don't know. I was getting reminiscent and like mm-hmm. nostalgia because I don't know about you guys, but I, I went through my, my delicious uh, rum and Coke stage for many, many years. And then I realized mm-hmm. that, uh, that it's not sustainable. So all my, my friends, question. <laughs> all my friends went to UF and they would drink bourbon and Cokes and I couldn't do it. It was just, it's, mm-hmm. uh, but rum Somehow and Coke was the, the way to go. Yeah. Yeah. Rum is so mm-hmm. mixable, I think. And it, it combines, you know, like the, the sweetness and the cola, like, I don't it know, is a sugar just, rush. I just I'll have that, that sweet tooth. Yeah, I guess I guess I just have a sweet tooth. But I think if you play around with it, much like the mojito or the daiquiri, it's really how much sweetness you like. You can you can tweak it and make it your own. But Who it's a simple that? one. At least so you always have Coke on hand, and hopefully always have Bacardi in your pantry. So when you guys think about rum and Coke, all right, where are you drinking this rum and Coke, John Noble Massey? Where are you drinking this rum and Coke? You know. Uh, Nathan is on his Hemingway kick, and I just can't think of a better place than watching a sunset down in Key West. And, and that'd be, yes, right there. And in listening Key West, to I music. will do a mojito. I'll do a mojito yeah. in Key Good West. Answer. But I, I do like, I just keep, oh. Uh, but don't you I, want your Hemingway daiquiri? I like how you're talking. I, like I, you know, I just want, I want to be in Key West. We'll just leave it at that. Yes. No, I'll, I'll throw one at you. Johnny got me going on that one. You know, one of my favorite. I got yeah. engaged, actually. Oh. Uh, and, well, well, this is a long time. Which time? <laughs> um, no. Are you talking Dr. about John, me or Brian? Are you asking me or Brian? Yeah, 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 yeah. Johnny, everyone knows that story on that one. But my favorite spot for this one is going to be Sunset Bar in St. Martin. Even back in my yachty days, I always loved St. Martin, and there's something special mm-hmm. about it. And just a nice, nothing better than a Bacardi and Coke uh, at the Sunset Bar in St. Martin. When the, that's where the planes come in and people get shot back. So that's part of the fun, too. I think so, mine's going to be by the pool floor. right now. As soon as our little podcast is over, I'll have a Bacardi and Coke with uh, yep. some, definitely some Oakart. I'm going to do Oakart tonight. Spicing it up a little. I know. Right. I and then, Rach, 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 where's that? Where's that Bacardi and Coke take you? Mm, that's a good question. So I think when you said St. Martin, it reminded me of this time that uh, it was like two years ago. We went to this really cool place called Soggy Dollar Bar in Joe's Van Dyke, which is in the British Virgin Islands. And I, I had, know it all too well. <laughs> oh man, that beach is gorgeous. I mean. The beaches here in Miami will suffice. I mean, I can't believe I leave at the, live at the beach, so it's amazing every day. But um, anywhere on a beach with a Cuba Libre, I am totally happy. So for Leonard Whalen and my, my brother, Captain Bill Connors, uh, the Soggy Dollar Bar, uh, one of my favorites. And guys, use your imagination because uh, the only way to get there is to swim in and hence your dollars are soggy. Yes, oh, and they have the most amazing rum cocktails there. Absolutely. I'm right there with you. I love, I love. We took place. a group of students Captain two Willis. years ago to, um, to Havana for a study abroad. And I remember drinking Cuba Libres in Havana. And, you know, that was, that was just exciting that I was there doing it. I think it was more of just the place and the drink, but it was pretty awesome. Kind of where it all started. Interesting. Interesting. 
All right. So, uh, well, well done, gang. That was very good. I mm. like that. A lot of, lot of information. A lot of, uh, all right, Rachel, thank you very much. This has been great. Of course, thank you guys for having be, me. Absolutely. There's going to be more information coming out as I teased earlier. I'm trying to get Rachel to do some more stuff with us. So it'll be a lot of fun. I think the, uh, every story we have is worth sharing because that's how we learn and grow. So it's all really good. So before we close this out, John Noble Nassie, you got anything going on, sir? No, I want to certainly thank Rachel. It was really wonderful to hear all of your great stories and hear some of the history at Bacardi. So appreciate you coming on and look Anytime. forward to working with you in the future. Absolutely. So it's good. Uh, Nathan Eugene Dodge. I just want to say, please, everyone follow us on Two Bar Stools and a Knife on, on Facebook and the Bacardi Center of Excellence. They are two different pages with two different posts. Make sure on Instagram you follow Professor N. Dodge. BP Connors and John Noble Massey also give us a review. I think we're up to four now. So I think my dad stepped up and uh, gave us a review on iTunes. It's just been our moms a second ago. So, and we've, like I said, we've been listened to in 31 countries. We're growing. We're super psyched about that. I look at our stats every day, probably a little bit too much. I can see a shift. So if you're new and you want to listen to our original shows, it's really great. We appreciate it. Don't judge us too harshly on like episodes one through eight. Oh, stop it already. Definitely so, not one through four. There, <laughs> We need to get some of our old people back like Chef Allen and Gabe. We, we weren't in our groove yet. Um, so come on back. Please remember, drink responsibly. Um, goodbye, everyone. And to our wonderful Parisian listener who listened again last week. We want to say uh, yes. au revoir. Bonjour. 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 Au revoir. Bonjour. Merci. That's All right, everybody. Thank you so much, <laughs> Rachel. Great to have you. Uh, we'll thank you, guys. Have you on it's again. been such a pleasure. Woo-hoo. Perfect. And please join us for our next Bacardi Talks coming up August 6th. We'll just plow from straight from Las Vegas, and we'll have some more fun, engaging stories coming up. So until then, everyone stay safe. We hope to see you real soon. Bye.